Bible says that um, uh, in the four Gospels, the Bible indicates that there were 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry. How many of you have heard me say this before? I want to ingrain this into your thinking. There were 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry. Now that, that does not include the multitudes in times where larger groups are identified. But there are 19 individual cases of healing. It seems like there's more than that very often because many of the, uh, at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke re- record the uh, the same healings that uh, um, each one of them record many of the same type of ones. And so it seems like there's not a lot more. But if you divide them out and separate them, you'll find out that there are 19 individual cases. Of those, the majority, almost 75% of those people that were healed in Jesus' ministry that the Bible gives us a record of were healed on their own faith. Almost 75%, the Bible tells us that they specifically that it was their faith that brought about their healing or it implies through their actions that their faith was a, um, a determining factor. Now, the rest of the times we don't know, the rest of the times uh, uh, there's not enough information to say. Uh, several of those uh, instances, we see a moving of the Holy Ghost where the faith was of the individual was not required. But my point is very simply this. If almost three-fourths of the people that were healed in Jesus' ministry that the Bible gives us record of, we know there were a lot more people than that that got healed. John said if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world couldn't contain the books. So that has to mean there were more cases of healing, Right. But the fact that the Holy Ghost gives us the record of the 19 that he does tells me that it gives us a complete picture of the healing ministry of Jesus. In other words, additional cases or incidents of healing would just be duplicates of the same types of things or the same principles that we already have record of. So if almost three-fourths of the people that were healed in Jesus' ministry were healed on their own faith, and Jesus was the Son of God, he had the Spirit of God without measure, How important does that make the subject of faith for us in receiving our healing today? I believe it makes it of paramount importance. For that reason, we want to teach on the subject of faith, as we commonly do. It's not because we're trying to exalt faith. It's because most people, unfortunately, in the church world, the modern church world, don't know what faith is. Because you'll hear people from every walk of life say, I'm talking about Christians, every type or form or category of Christian will say, oh, I believe God. Well, what does that mean? They're the ones moaning and groaning about, oh, what are we going to do now? Well, that's not believing in God. They're the ones crying, oh, God, please move. Oh, God, please do something. Well, that's not faith. So what do they mean when they say, I have faith? Oh, I believe God. There's so many times I've asked people, uh, when they come to, to receive their healing, I'll ask people, well, what are you standing on? What do you believe God for? Or what are you looking for? And they say, oh, Pastor Mike, I have faith. And they'll proceed to tell me everything contrary to what the Bible says about their situation. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, what do you think faith is? So I'm convinced you can't teach on faith enough. Because those of us that have chosen to make faith the lifestyle, the basis for our lives, and the Bible says in many, many places, Old Testament and New, it says the just shall live by faith. It doesn't say the just shall use their faith. It says the just, the righteous, in other words, shall live by faith. Well, that means faith is a lifestyle then. Well, those of us that have chosen to make faith our lifestyle, you keep learning, you keep growing, you keep discovering new things about it. There are things that the Holy Spirit adds to your faith. There are experiences that help strengthen your faith. There are things that we might even have faith failures. I kind of hate to use that term, but you know what I mean. Where we don't receive from God that we come to, to realize, here's the mistake that we made, we'll never make that one again. So the Bible talks about all kinds of different faith. It talks about strong faith and weak faith. It talks about unfeigned faith. That means sincere faith. 
It talks about growing faith. It talks about faith on a lot of different levels. Tonight I want to talk to you about rock faith. R-O-C-K. Rock faith. Did you find Matthew 7? Jesus said in verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not. For it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus is saying the key to building a house that lasts is to build it on a foundation that he calls a rock. Now, what's he say is the is the determining factor for success or failure? Notice the same storms come to both uh, both individuals. Same wind, same rain, same wind, same uh, floods come. Circumstances don't change from one person to the other. Same exact circumstances occur for both. There's only one difference, and that is one chooses to be a doer of the word, and the other chooses to only hear the word and not be a doer thereof. Jesus says, hearing and doing the word of God, putting the word of God in practice in your life, establishes a rock-solid foundation that nothing of this earth can shake. To do otherwise is to deceive yourself. James said this way, James 1.22, he said, But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I think we've got a lot of self-deceived Christians. We've got a lot of Christians that are deceived, thinking that they're doing the word, when in fact all they've done is hear it, and then they choose to let something else be the determining factor for what they do or what action they take in life. Now, that person can be deceived. He can build the same house. He can build the same good-looking house, the same house that sits upon the sand and may rest there for any number of years before the storms come. In fact, that person may build a house that looks better than the one that's built on the rock. But all it takes is a good, healthy storm, the circumstances of life. The rains come, the winds blow, and the floods come. All it takes to expose whether somebody is on the rock or on the sand are the circumstances of life. Now, notice how we're, we stopped right there because that ends what Jesus said about building your house, whether on the rock or on the sand. But notice it continues in verse 28. It said, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished because he was the Son of God. Are you reading with me? It's not what it says. That's what we think. We think that everybody was amazed at Jesus because he was the son of God and he did such miracles and signs and wonders. And boy, everybody just went ooh and ah because he was the son of God. Folks, very few people believe that Jesus was the son of God when he was here on the earth. Jesus didn't even require them to believe that he was the son of God to do the miracles. He just required them to believe that he was sent from God. That's all it took. There were very few times that Jesus told the crowds, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah. Very few times. But he would frequently tell them that he was sent from his father. Now, what they interpreted that to mean is up to them. may have been based on their knowledge of the Old Testament law and scriptures and so forth. But notice it says, when he ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. 
That's what doctrine means. It's the word translated for teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. What has he taught them? Well, one thing he taught them is that you decide whether you succeed or fail in life. You decide whether your house stands or falls. Now, folks, even today, most people relegate that in their thinking to the will of God. God wants some people to make it. Others, God has a different plan, and that must involve tragedy and some kind of purpose for this trouble we're having. That's not what Jesus taught them. Jesus taught them that they determined the success or failure they would experience in life. John Lake used to um, preach a sermon. He preached it many, many times. There are uh, numerous transcripts of him preaching this sermon. And he, and he always had something different to it whenever he would preach it again. It was always fresh and new for him. But he used to preach a sermon called The Strong Man's Way to God. That caused more persecution in his ministry than any other thing. Because people then, just like people now, don't want to think that they have to be strong when it comes to the things of God. They want God to do it for them. The people that are criticizing the so-called faith message, you know what they criticize? They criticize the fact that we say we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Because they want to take the position that, well, you just never know. Well, you never know when the storm's going to come. But you can know what the outcome is going to be if the storm or when the storm does come. You determine that. When he finished these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine or his teaching. For, verse 29, for he taught them, I'm reading from the King James, he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now to read that the way the translators translated it leads us to think that he taught them like he had authority. But if he's talking about him having authority, why is he telling them to be doers of the word? Why didn't he just take authority over any storm that's going to come from their life for the rest of their days here on the earth and say, be a success and don't fall? I mean, if he's the one that has authority. See, we get religious notions about Jesus and the way that he operated. We think because Jesus was the son of God, he took authority over everything. And he just operated the way, whatever way God wanted him to do. And it just worked no matter what. Well, then I've got a question. Why couldn't Jesus get any healings and miracles done in Nazareth? Mark chapter 6, verse 5 says, and there, speaking of his hometown of Nazareth, and there he could do no mighty work. It does not say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. So if Jesus had all authority and Jesus was the one that determined what results occurred, why didn't he get any results in his hometown of Nazareth? Well, the Bible tells you the answer. That's not the answer the church will give you. But the Bible goes on to say in verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he marveled because of their unbelief. In other words, their choice of whether to believe or to doubt determined what he could do. Now, folks, you can't tell me that it's different like different from that today. If Jesus' results, if Jesus' healings, if Jesus' miracles were determined by whether or not the people would believe or the people chose to doubt, you can't tell me that God's just going to do things apart from people believing today. Because if he's going to show off for anybody, he's going to show off for his son. Wouldn't you think? Well, then our understanding or the, the common understanding of verse 29 can't be true. He's not teaching them that he has authority. He's just told them that they have authority. They decide whether they'll be doers of the word. They decide whether the house they're building, their life, in other words, will stand or fall when the circumstances of life and storms of life come. They decide, not him. They, they do. 
So what does this mean? Well, notice the word one is in italics. The translators added it. I, I personally think in this case, they couldn't accept that Jesus was saying that man had authority. I think they're, they're, they're in line with most of the church world, the religious world's idea. Jesus is the one with authority, so let's put the word one in there to help people understand that that's what he meant. But it's not there. That's not what he meant. For he taught them as having authority. That's how the original text reads. For he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. Now the word as, the, the word that's translated as means two things. It means how, speaking of the manner to. So let's just use the word how. It's Jesus taught them how. The word having means to hold. Literally, this reads, for he taught them. They were astonished at his doctrine, for they taught, for he taught them how to hold authority. And not as the scribes. Well, we understand the scribes part. They didn't teach anything that was worthwhile when it came to the kingdom of God. So he's teaching them something that blows their minds. What is he teaching them? What is it that blows their minds? He's teaching them how to hold, or we might say to exercise authority. How do you hold or how do you exercise authority? Be a doer of the word. That's what causes you to build your house on the rock. That's what causes your life to be built on the solid foundation of the word of God, which cannot fail. Jesus said over and over again, it's it's listed about five or six times, I'm not sure, five or six times in the Gospels. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never fail. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never fail. I want you to understand what he's really saying. Think this through. He's saying that it's more possible. There's a greater possibility for the earth to instantly disappear, pass away than for his word to fail to come to pass. There's a greater possibility that heaven, the throne of God, disappear like it never existed than for his word to fail. Now, folks, how likely is it that the throne of God disappears? The Bible says in the, after the tribulation and after the millennium and all those things at the end time, it says there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And it says the throne of God will come down from heaven and be here on the earth. But the throne of God doesn't cease to exist under any circumstances. That's what he's saying. When he says heaven and earth will pass away before my word will ever fail, he's saying there is a greater possibility for heaven to disappear, for the throne of God to disappear as if it never existed than for the word of God to fail. And bless our hearts, we moan and groan saying, oh, God, is it working? It's impossible for it not to work if you're a doer of the word. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. While you're turning, I'll remind you of something that Peter wrote to the church. Second Peter chapter 1, I think it's verse 1. Let me turn over there real quick and see if I can find it. Yeah, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says this. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. He's saying that because we've been born again, we have like, meaning the same kind, precious faith. 
like precious faith is with who? Whose faith are, is ours like? Folks, there's only one person that the Bible really tells us what their faith was like, and that's the one God made a covenant with, the faith of Abraham. Have you found Romans 4? It tells us the story of Abraham's faith. It says, you remember the story how that God appears to Abraham when he's 75 years old. He says, follow me, go where I tell you to go, and I'll make you a blessing. I'll make your name great, meaning you'll have plenty of children. He said, uh, I'll bless you, I'll make your name great, and I'll make you a blessing. Abraham followed him. He goes where he tells him to go. God makes him very rich in silver and cattle and gold. But he's 75 when he first hears from God, when God first appears, and he begins to obey God. He goes until he's almost 100 years old, and he still doesn't have the children that God said would be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. At the time that he finally talks to God on the last time relative to this event, relative to him having a child, he's almost 100 years old. And he's at this point given up from thinking that anything could possibly happen with himself and Sarah, his wife, who's 90, because their bodies have ceased to function in a sexual manner, in a reproductive manner. Their bodies are literally dead to reproducing. And God challenges him. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? What's he challenging Abraham with? I want you to think this through. I hope I'm th- I hope I get you to think it in different terms. Because you've got a lot greater faith than what you know you have. Most people do at least. Most people that have heard the word, most people that have fed on the word to any degree, have much greater faith, have a great, much greater measure of faith than they are convinced that they have. So when God challenged Abraham and said, is anything too hard for the Lord? What's he saying? He's asking, is any problem that you see with your body or with Sarah's body or your age or anything else, is there anything according to the circumstances that cannot be overcome by me with just my word? At that point in time, God had told him for 25 years, your seed shall be as the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky. Now, Abraham doesn't see it yet, and I'm sure every year that ticks by and every change he sees occurring in his body and every change he sees occurring in Sarah, I'm sure he has an opportunity to keep a tally of that, saying, well, there's one more reason why it can't be. There's one more reason why it can't be. But after he tallies up 25 years of reasons why it can't be, God shows up and says, is anything too hard for me? Check your list. Is there anything on your list that's too tough for me? Remember, I created this place. I created your body that you keep ticking against. I created you that you keep looking at the part of you that you keep looking at to judge whether or not it can possibly work. Is there any of that too great for me? And folks, it turned everything about Abraham around. Now, chapter 4 of Romans tells us about Abraham's turnaround. God made a covenant with Abraham. It'd be great to say that Abraham never doubted God, but he did. Just like you and I have. But it didn't keep him out of the blessings. It didn't keep him out of the promises for this reason. If he had kept on the way he was going, it would have. But for this reason, God in his mercy turned him around and pointed him in the right direction. 
when it was too late for him physically to have what he wanted, what God had originally promised for him to have. And notice what the Bible says about Abraham and God under these circumstances. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made thee. Here's what God is. Here's what is written in the scripture, the Old Testament that God said to Abraham. As it is written in the Old Testament, God said, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him, that means Abraham being like God, whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they are. Now, folks, I like to say it this about verse 17. This is God's job description. He makes dead things alive, and he calls things that are not as though they are. He's already said of Abraham, I have made, past tense, I have made. It's already done. I have made thee the father of nations. He said that to him before he ever had a child. He said that to him about, well, not quite, uh, between 15 and 20 years before he ever had a child. I have made thee the father of nations. Abraham goes 15 to 20 years without seeing the reality of having been made the father of nations. And every year that goes by, like we said, he's probably got one more circumstance, at least one more circumstance to say, well, (laughs) don't know how that's going to work. Hope it's not too late. By the time he gets to 100 years old, he just says, and the Lord says, I have made you the father of nations. You and Sarah are going to have a child. He laughs and says, well, why don't you just bless Ishmael? I had him about 15 years ago, you know, with the Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. He's the father of the Arabs now. Just bless him. Doesn't sound like great faith there, does it? Sounds like some of us. Well, Lord, let's don't shoot for the best now. Let's just work with what we've got. Why don't you just make something out of this? And God said, well, I will bless him because he's your son and I've got a covenant with you. But that's not the child of promise. And he asked him, is anything too hard for the Lord? Why? Because here's what God does. God makes dead things alive. Now, his body and Sarah's body are dead in a reproductive manner. So if he's going to give them a child, he's going to have to bring their bodies back to life reproductively. Is that too hard for God? Apparently not. Because the Bible says that Abraham lives some 25 years after he has has Isaac at age 100, and he has more sons and daughters. So I guess when God zaps you in your flesh, you stay zapped for a good long while. Isaac was not the last child that Abraham had. This was not a one-shot deal. So God God makes dead things alive. Number one, and secondly, he calls things that be not as though they are. He calls things that be not as though they are. Now, what does that mean? That means what God says is true, even though they don't look to be true. That means if we take God's word as the word that we build our house on, we are building our house on things that God said that don't look like they're true. That don't have the appearance of reality. Yet, because God said them, they have a greater truth than the circumstances that are very real in life. Abraham's circumstances of his body and the age of his body and what his body does and can't do anymore and Sarah's too, those are very real things. But he's got a truth that has a greater reality than the circumstance. 
Folks, you've got to understand there's a difference between truth and real. You can look at your circumstances and say, well, these things are real. They may be real, but you've got a greater truth that will change that reality. Nothing is greater than truth. And circumstances, Jonah, you know, remember what Jonah said in the belly of the fish? With seaweed wrapped around his head, with his flesh being eaten by stomach acid, Jonah said, I will not consider these lying vanities. Why? Because God said, go to Nineveh and preach. Jonah said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to take a boat the other way. So the boat runs into a storm. People are trying to figure out what's going on. This is a supernatural storm. God's in this. We're fighting against God here. And Jonah said, it's me. Throw me overboard. You'll be okay. They threw Jonah overboard and the storm stopped. And God prepared a fish. The fish swallowed up Jonah. What's the fish for? What does Jonah know the fish is for? To take him to Nineveh. Now, folks, I would submit to you there was a lot better way to get there. But Jonah knows exactly what's going on. He doesn't think the fish is there to kill him. He doesn't think the purpose of him being in the fish is to die a horrible death being eaten away with, with whale stomach acid or whatever it is, you know. Yep. That's not what's going on. He realizes that the fish has a purpose. That purpose is to accomplish what God told him to do in the beginning. So he says of the stomach acid, of the seaweed wrapped around his head, of the blackness being in this fish underwater and all the things that are associated with it, he said, I will not consider these lying vanities. Now, folks, I would submit to you that what he's calling lying vanities are very real circumstances. So what's he doing calling them lying vanities? He recognizes that there's a greater truth than the reality of the circumstance. And truth always trumps circumstance. Always. Well, what's the truth? The truth is God's sending me to Nineveh. Sure enough, the fish gets close to Nineveh, vomits him up on the beach, and everybody in the coastal town see him show up. That's quite an entrance. He comes out, dusts himself off, or whatever, and says, God sent me here for you to tell you to repent or else your nation will be destroyed. And he goes walking through the whole of the country, telling people, and his fame goes out ahead of him. Everybody knows this is the guy that the fish spit up. I'm not sure, but I'm thinking that might give you some credibility with your message. And then everyone repents. He gets upset about that. But the whole point is, he had very real circumstances, just like Abraham had very real circumstances. And they both took something from God to change the circumstance. And that was the truth of what God had said. So as it is written, the Old Testament writes and tells us, God said, I have made thee, past tense, I have made thee the father of nations. Before he ever had a child, God had said for many, many years, you are the father of nations. I've made you so. And Abraham, who learned to become like God, didn't start off that way, but he learned to become like God. Before God, that's what it means, was like God. And Abraham was like God in that he believed 
God who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. If Abraham didn't understand that that's how God worked, he never would have been able to stand strong. That's why it's so important to talk about faith and faith in God's word. Faith and the word of God. Because people, most of the church world don't understand here's how it works. They look at their circumstances and base it upon or and compare it to the word. The word says Jesus took your infirmities and bare your sicknesses and with his stripes you were healed. And they look at their bodies and the doctor report and say, but I'm sick. So the word can't be true. I'm sick. That's real. I've got a doctor's diagnosis confirming it. So it can't be true that Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. But if you understand that God does two things. Number one, he calls things that be not as though they were. The what is in reality in your life, the sickness in your life, has already been called healing. And number two, God quickens that which is dead. So he'll take the dead parts of your body that cancer or whatever sickness is, is uh, wrought in your flesh, and he'll make that alive. If we understand the same thing that he challenged Abraham with. And we should certainly operate the same way that Abraham did because we are of the same like precious faith as Abraham. Don't tell me you can't develop this kind of faith. Anybody can. Abraham did. And you know a lot more than Abraham. So what did he understand? He understood that nothing's too hard for God. There's no circumstance that negates the truth of God's word. If God said it, that's the final word on the subject. And he'll make whatever that's dead alive that he needs to to bring his word to pass. Because heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never fail. There is more chance of the throne of God disappearing in an instant as if it never existed than for the word of God to fail. No matter what circumstances are facing you in life. As it is written, I have made thee the father of nations before God whom he believed. That means Abraham believed God who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were, who, I'm going to change this a little bit for the sake of understanding, who without any basis in his circumstance or in his life for hope believed and developed his own hope. Now, how did he develop that own, his own hope? He developed it from that which God said. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to become the father of nations. That's like saying, the Bible says that by Jesus' stripes I was healed, but the doctor says I'm sick in my body. So I don't have any natural hope from what the doctor says or the circumstances in my flesh or the pain that I'm experiencing. I don't have anything to base hope in in those natural or physical circumstances. But I need hope because hope is the the thing that faith gives substance to. So I need hope. So where am I going to get my hope? I'm going to have to get my hope from the Word of God that says, by His stripes you were healed. Now, why do I want to do that? Because I want to become healed. I want healing to become a reality in my body, whereas the circumstances of sickness and disease are a reality in my flesh right now. I want those circumstances to change. So I'm going to have to put my hope in something that is different from the circumstances. And that hope has to have a basis in God's word. Jesus said, whosoever is heareth my words and doeth them is like a wise man that builds his house on the rock. The man that builds his house on the sand is the man that says, well, you know, doctors should know. That's their business. They make lots of money at it. So I guess they should know. So I know the word says, by Jesus' stripes we were healed, but I guess that's just not for everybody. That man's on the sand. 
And the storms of life, meaning specifically the storms of sickness, are going to take him down. Doesn't mean he's not saved. Doesn't mean he doesn't love God. Doesn't mean God doesn't love him. It means he has chosen to base his faith in what he sees instead of what God's word says. But the man that builds his house on the rock says, okay, these are the circumstances in my body. That's the very reason why I need to have faith in something else. What am I going to put my faith in? The word of God says, by Jesus' stripes, I was healed. I'm going to put my faith in God's word because God's word can't fail. Why? Because I want to be healed. I want what the Bible says is already mine to be a reality in my present day body. That's what it's saying about Abraham. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Verse 19. And being not weak in faith. And being not weak in faith. It's going to tell you, the Bible's going to tell you very specifically how you cannot be weak in faith. How you can avoid being weak in faith. Here's how you do it. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. Let me paraphrase this for you. He didn't allow the circumstances in his body. What were the circumstances in his body? His and Sarah's body are dead reproductively. It's physically impossible for them to have a child. Physically impossible. But he did not let those physical circumstances, physical realities, become the determining factor for what he looked at and believed. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about a 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. But, here's the reverse, but was strong in faith. Well, I skipped one, didn't I? I skipped a part. Verse 20, it says, he staggered not at the promise of God. In my opinion, that's a real bad translation. The American Standard's real good on this. It says, but looking under the promise of God, he staggered not. That's what it means. He's not looking at his body. That, that's what it means where it says he considered not his own body now dead. It doesn't mean he denied what was going on in his body. It doesn't mean he looked at himself in the mirror and said, you're alive, you're alive, you're alive, you're alive, you're alive. doesn't mean that. See, a lot of times people are trying to deny circumstances and think that's faith. It's not. Faith doesn't call things that are as they are not. It calls things that are not, based on God's word, by his stripes I'm healed, as they were. So instead of looking at his own body and trying to deny the circumstances in his body, he's going to have to look at something else. What's he going to look at? He's going to look at what the, the, his hope is based on. He's going to look at the basis of his hope, which is the word of God. By his stripes, I am healed. Or in his case, that would be the case for healing tool. In, in uh, Abraham's case, so shall your seed be. God's already told him what his seed is going to be like. The stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. That's impossible unless he has a child. He knows that. He recognizes that. So he chooses to look at the promise of God and stagger not because at the circumstances, not let the circumstances affect him, but instead was strong in faith. How do you get strong in faith? You've got two things that you can choose to look at, either the circumstances of your body or the truth of God's word. Only two things. The circumstances of life or the truth of God's word. One way or the other, it's your choice. 
Jesus said, if you build your house on the rock, which is the word of God, your house won't fall no matter what storm comes against you, including sickness and disease. But if you build your house on the sand, hear the word of God, but not be a doer thereof, it's the same thing as considering your circumstances and saying the word can't work because of this. The word can't work because the doctor says I've got cancer. Word can't work because the doctor says it's too late. Word can't work because of whatever. That's what that means. That person's going to fall. Loving God all the way down, maybe. But they're going to fall. So you got two choices. You're going to have to look at something. You can either look at the circumstances of your body or you can look at the truth of the word. Abraham was strong in faith because he looked at the truth of the word. And being strong in faith, being strong in faith, what does strong faith do? Notice what it says. And being strong in faith, giving glory to God. What's he doing? He's looking at the promise of the word, so shall your seed be, and thanking God for the children before he ever has them. He's not thanking God because his body's dead. He's not looking at, some people bless their hearts, they get things all twisted up. The Bible says in everything give thanks. It doesn't say for everything. It says in everything. You don't thank God for sickness and disease. He didn't give it to you. You don't thank God for adversity. You don't thank God for poverty and tragedy. You don't thank God for things that come from the devil. But you do thank God in the middle of it. Now, why in the world would we want to do that? Because he's got a promise that will overcome the circumstance. you got a promise of healing that will overcome the reality of whatever is going on in your flesh or in your life. So that's where you give glory to God. That's the in everything give thanks. You find the truth of the word, the promise of God's word that says something else belongs to you, and you give God glory because that's true, not the circumstances. You're just like Jonah. I may be in the middle of this sickness. I may be in the middle of this disease. I may be in the middle of this hard place, but it's just a vehicle to take me to the promises of God. It's just a vehicle to get me to where God's word says I'm supposed to be. For Jonah, it was Nineveh. For you, it could be healing. So I will reject the lying vanities and put my trust in God's word. Can you see it? That's who you have like precious faith with. This is the like precious faith that you are joined together. In other words, this is the way your faith is supposed to work. Because you're of the same family. He staggered not at the promise of God. In other words, looking at the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. I love verse 21, and being fully persuaded. And being fully persuaded. Can I ask you something, folks? How long did it take Abraham to get fully persuaded? One year before he had the child, he's laughing at God's promise and saying, just bless Ishmael. Don't you think for a minute that Abraham spent 25 years getting fully persuaded? He didn't. He spent some portion of those 25 years being discouraged. But God appears to him and says, this time next year, you're going to have a child. That's when he says, oh, Lord, give up on that. Just bless Ishmael. So we know it's a one-year period. If we assume that she had a nine-month pregnancy, which is normal, that means it took three months for Abraham to get from God saying, this time next year you're going to have a child, to her getting pregnant. It took three months for his body to change and for Sarah's body to change. Three months. That means he became fully persuaded in three months or less. 
I would submit to you folks that three months is a worthy investment to being fully persuaded of the truth of God's word. If he did it, you can do it. You're of like precious faith with him. And being fully persuaded that what God had promised, God was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. In other words, he's saying everybody that's been made righteous by the blood of Jesus should operate this way. Everybody. Everybody. And being fully persuaded. And being fully persuaded. And being fully persuaded that what that God was able to do what he promised. He became fully persuaded that God was able to do what he promised. How did he get there? He goes from laughing and saying, I'll oh, forget it. Just Ishmael, you know, bless him. To three months later, getting Sarah pregnant. Uh, again, assuming she had a nine-month term. You know, who knows? But it's got to be something around there, I guess, doesn't it? It's got to be some time period associated or similar to that. How did he get there? How did he get there in three months? Well, how do we get there? Well, we remember the things that God has honored his word in our lives in, in times past. We look at examples. Abraham didn't have any. Abraham didn't have any examples. He didn't have any history. He didn't have to, somebody to look at and say, well, remember what God did for so-and-so. He didn't have that. He's the first. We don't have any record that God had talks with him like he did with Adam, told him about creation or anything like that. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. We don't know that he would know that. We would assume that he's the creator of the universe, that he would know that he's the creator of the universe because God had said so in one of his appearances to Abraham in times past. But what does he know beyond that? Does he know how God created the earth? Does he know what we know about the Genesis account? Does he know about Noah and the flood? Does he know? Who knows? So the one thing that we can know is that he can go back to the times where God delivered him before. He probably thinks back to the first time God appears and says, wait a minute. This is the same God that said if I would follow him, he would bless me, he'd make my name great, and he'd make me a blessing. Well, he certainly blessed me. Man, I'm overflowing with silver and cattle, silver, gold, and cattle. He certainly did that. He has made my name great. Man, everywhere I go, I'm famous because God's with me and everybody knows it. He's made me a blessing. Look at all the people I'm able to bless with what God has given me. He was true to his word in that. Now, it may seem to me like there's a difference between God being able to make you rich and make you famous and things like that, and God being able to make your body live after it's dead in this area. But if he is the creator of the universe, like he said, that means he made man's body. He could make me a new one if I needed it, couldn't he? He knows what's wrong with it. He knows what's different with it now than when I was 75 years old when he first appeared to me. If he knows how to do it because he's the creator of it, then he could certainly, he would certainly be able to make it happen, wouldn't he? And folks, that is exactly what God means when he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is making you a new person too tough for me? What about for us? Well, he made you new in spirit, did he? He took the old stony heart out of your flesh and put a new spirit or a new heart in you and then put his spirit in you. Would somebody explain to me how that works? Tell me how that occurs. 
I know the principle behind it. I can quote the scriptures that say how it works. Somebody tell me how. Well, God reaches down and pulls out your old spirit. Then how, how come you don't die? The Bible says this body without the spirit is dead. How is it that God's able to do it in such a manner that you don't die? Well, see, what happens, Pastor Mike, is he leaves the spirit in there and he just fixes it. No. No, the Bible says you're a new spirit. The Bible talks about being born again, not refurbished. He talks about being made a new spirit, a new creature in Christ Jesus. How does he do that? You can't find a human being on the planet that can give you an answer to that. Now, we can speculate. We can say, well, maybe it's like this. Yeah, maybe not. You're never going to have to have all the answers to how to be able to be fully persuaded. It is so interesting to me. It's almost funny, sad, but it's, in, it's almost funny. When you see people get all twisted up, they've got to have this answer. If I could just get this one answer, then I could believe. Well, forget it. Because if you got that answer, there'd be another question down the road. You wouldn't have the answer to that one. You're never going to have all the answers. That's what makes it a faith proposition. Somewhere along the way, you just choose to accept, wait a minute, God is who he said he is. I'm going to believe that. I've found that you get a lot more answers that way. So how did Abraham become fully persuaded? He became fully persuaded because he realized that with all the things that God had done for him and and to him and through him throughout the 25 years that he's been following him, every word that God ever said came to pass. And if necessary, God could make them brand new all over again. And so he chose to believe. Please understand the phrase that I'm using. He chose to believe. He had evidence from prior experience, but he chose to believe that nothing in this regard was too hard for God. Now, we've got more than he did. Because like I said, Jesus said over again, over and over again, five or six times in the Gospels, he said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never fail. I want you to start thinking in lines with this, folks. It is easier It is more likely, it is more probable for the throne of God to disappear as if it never existed than for his word to fail for you. That's how real the word is. That's how true it is. This is the kind of faith you have. It may not be the kind of faith you're exercising, but this is the kind of faith that you have. Because you have like precious faith with Abraham. Just as it was imputed as righteousness for him, you and I have been made righteous. Turn with me. We'll close with this. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. What does that mean for us, Pastor Mike? Well, we've already quoted several times Isaiah 53, 5, which says, Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses, and with his stripes you were healed. That says it's already been done. Just like God had made Abraham the father of nations, he has healed you. He's already called things that be not as though they are. If necessary, he can make whatever part of your body that seems to be dead or is dead alive. He can do the same thing for you that he did for Abraham in whatever area you need it. Because by Jesus' stripes, you are healed. You were healed, therefore you are healed. Matthew 8.16 confirms the very same thing for the New Testament. 
Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. Now notice what Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Therefore I say unto you, because the principles of faith as described in verse 23, believe in your heart and say with your mouth. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever. What things soever. Think about what that means. What limits are there on what things soever? What things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Now, folks, I want to combine that or attach that with Isaiah 53, 5. Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses, and with his stripes you were healed. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire. We're talking about healing, the healing you desire. For whatever it is, whatever the circumstance is, however serious it is, maybe serious, maybe not serious, whatever it is, whatever the doctor has said about it, what things soever you desire. Well, I desire a well body. How about you? What things soever you desire, when you pray. Now, he's talking time now. When you pray, at the time you pray, believe that you receive them, meaning the things you desire, and you shall have them. Now, since heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word cannot fail, think about that. There is more probability of the throne of heaven disappearing as if it never existed than for your desires received by faith when you pray, to not be realized. Your father is the God of the impossible. It's time that we started believing that. It's impossible for a prayer, pray, a prayer prayed based on Mark eleven twenty four to not work. Impossible. That's what Jesus said. It's impossible. That's why he said, all things are possible to him that believes. All things are possible to him that believes. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We magnify your name. Father, I feel impressed to begin this prayer by asking you to forgive us for doubting you. Because so many of your children fail to recognize the absolute certainty of your word acted on. But Father, I choose instead to focus on how wonderful it is to know that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never fail. That means your words concerning healing can never fail for us if we believe we receive. We worship you, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the healer. We thank you that you took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with your stripes we were healed. We desire well bodies, Father. 
we desire the reality in our lives, that which Jesus has purchased. Therefore, we believe in our heart and say with our mouths, we receive our healing. Say this after me. I receive my healing in the name of Jesus. Because God's word says that I was healed by Jesus' stripes. And because the word says, whatever I desire, when I pray, if I believe that I receive it, then I shall have it. Thank you, Father, that healing is mine. It's up to you to see that I have it because I believe I receive it based upon your word. Thank you, Father, that I'm healed in Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but it's impossible for me to fail to receive my healing because I've been a doer of your word. Folks, when you understand this concept, it'll change everything about your prayer life. Not just where healing is concerned, but everything. Charles Finney told of a man that uh, Charles Finney was one of the greatest modern, well, I don't know if you can call him modern day. He was in the 1900s. But the, one of the greatest revivalists of anybody we have record of in America. And um, because he was a lawyer, he presented, the, he presented salvation to people based on evidence. And it was the first time anybody had ever done that. It had always been based on emotion prior to that. And, you know, you get people to cry and come to the altar, but then next week they forget they cried and, you know, they don't stick with the things of God. But Finney had more people in his revival meetings that stuck with the things of God than anybody in, in history up until that point in time. And when they, they questioned him about it, when people started doing studies and questioned him about it, he said very simply, it's because we base our conversions on the truth of the word. We tell people what the Bible says will happen and then expect them to believe it. And it happens in their lives. Well, he had a guy that would uh, go with him, really go ahead of him, not with him, but go ahead of him to uh, whatever city he was going to go to next. This guy was named Father Nash. He was an Episcopal priest, retired. And uh, the Lord just put it on his heart. He wasn't on staff or wasn't on salary or anything like that. The Lord just put it on his heart to go ahead of where Finney was going to have his revival meetings. And, um, uh, and, and Finney started having such tremendous results and, and there would be some other people that would find out about Father Nash and it was discovered after a period of time. And so people that were close to Finney told him about this. And so Finney decided he was going to go with Father Nash on one of these prayer excursions. He'd get there a few days before the meeting. So Finney decided, you know, I'm going to go help this guy pray or see what he's doing. Cause he recognized that there's a, there's a, a power of God to their meetings that that somebody's bringing around in prayer. So he went with uh, Father Nash, and Father Nash would rent a little room, and so he and Finney were together in this room. And Finney said, I was most amazed 
at the way Father Nash would pray. Little bitty skinny guy, slight guy. But he said he would pray with the force of heaven. And he said, Father Nash would, I would hear Father Nash say things like, after he was in time, uh, in prayer for a period of time, he'd say things like, now Father, you don't think we're not going to have revival here, do you? He'd quote scriptures and he'd say things like, Father, you don't think this is not going to happen, do you? Now some people would take that as being brash. Some people would take that as arrogance. But what it's showing is his faith in the impossibility of God's word failing. He's saying, here's what your word says. You said if we asked, you said if we believed, you said if we besought, if we sought you out for the things of God, you would do them. So there's no way for it not to happen. Then he said this. He came away with this. He said, no, two things. He said, number one, I've never felt so small as when I prayed with Father Nash. Now, he's the one getting all the credit for all the people that are getting saved. But he said, I never felt so small. He was aware of Father Nash's power in prayer. And the second thing he said is, I learned that the word of God is true in a way that I had never seen before. And it revolutionized his ministry. Folks, you get a hold of this same reality. It'll revolutionize your prayer life. Prayer is not some, oh, God, please make this happen. Prayer is, Father, here's what your word says. The reason you said it in your word is because you desire for it to happen. Therefore, I demand my rights. Brother, I heard Brother Hagin say that when I first got to Ramah. He said it in a private meeting. He said, it amazes me how many Christians are trying to get God to do something for them. He said, they'll spend hours and hours trying to beg God and to do something, beg God or trying to convince him to do something. He said, I don't pray like that. He said, I always go to God based on my rights. He said, I'll pray. Father, I demand my rights in Jesus name. You did it because it was your will through your son, Jesus. Therefore, I demand my rights. He said, I always get my answers. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm praying. I'm basing my prayer life on the infallibility of God's word. It'll change everything about you. God expects you to be fully persuaded, folks, in whatever you come against. Because whatever you face in life, there's a promise for it. And you've got a guarantee from God that if you believe you receive it, what things soever you desire, you'll have them. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for being with us. God bless you. Have a great week.